Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Joining me today is music writer, Grammy Award winner, and professor of ethnomusicology, Dr. Rob Bowman. Rob, thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. Hey, Brent. How you doing? Good. Good. Thanks for coming in, man. Rob, you are a highly accomplished musicologist and writer. You've written books, studies, and liner notes for many records. One of those records being the Rolling Stones, their Satanic Majesty's Request 50th anniversary release. Is that right? That's correct. How did that, how did that come about? That was a good summer. Dylan hired me. The Stones hired me. Rush hired me. Wow. Um, you know, it varies. It varies summer to summer. I've done 250 or 300 sets of liner notes now. Wow. So I'm pretty internationally renowned. The Stones had worked with me. They'd hired me back in 2002, 2003, took me on the road with them because oh. they wanted somebody who could interview them in depth about their art, meaning their music, as opposed to just sex and drugs. And they were looking for a writer who could do that. And it's really funny. Their office gave them a list of 10 writers. Okay. And Charlie Watts was telling me, there are 10 writers, and they were all shit, <laughs> except for one who was dead. <laughs> and the one who was dead was Robert Palmer, a great writer he used to write for the New York Times. Yeah. And so Charlie said, at that point, we realized we had to figure this out. And Keith is an avid nonfiction reader. Keith is a reading maniac machine. Man, he was reading my book, Soulsville, USA, The Story of Stacks Records, at rehearsals. And even funnier, Keith is the kind of reader that puts post-it notes on different pages with little notes to himself. Oh. I mean, we're not talking about a guy who casually reads a book. He reads it like a PhD student's reading a book. So Keith is reading this book at breaks and rehearsals and stuff. And he goes, this guy might be good. And the really funny thing about it is, when I was... Nine years old, well, eight years old, I became a Stones fan. Mm -hmm. But they recorded a song when I was nine called That's How Strong My Love Is. Okay. It was a cover of a record they learned from Otis Redding. Mm -hmm. Otis actually covered it from another R&B guy named O.V. Wright. But the Stones learned it from Otis. And I loved that song. I loved the way Mick sang it. And Mick talked about in an interview how he'd learned it from this guy, Otis Redding. Mm -hmm. I didn't know who Otis Redding was. I went to my local record store, which at that time was an Eden's department store, Don Mills, yep. and asked them if they had Otis Redding. That's how strong my love is. They didn't, but they had Otis's newest record, Try a Little Tenderness. Mm -hmm. I took that home, put the needle, I'll never forget it. I get chills thinking about it. Put the needle on that piece of vinyl, and it opened up whole other sonic worlds to me worlds of sound, feelings, experience that I never knew existed. It didn't mean that the Stones and the Beatles and other things I'd been listening to was suddenly, you know, lesser. I loved them equally, but for very different reasons, because they were very different things. Mm -hmm. Anyway, long story short, so the Stones turned me on to Otis Redding. Otis Redding records for Stacks. When I do my PhD, I do my dissertation on Stacks. Turn it into a book, which is now in the Blues Hall of Fame. Build the Stacks Museum in Memphis. Win a Grammy Award and get nominated for several others for my work on Stacks. And Keith Richards gets turned on to my work about Stacks and hires me. So, <laughs> so great. It was amazing. So, you know, I, I worked for them back then. I was, it was incredible being on the road with them, sitting in hotel rooms with Keith. He'd have his guitar on his lap and we'd be, you know, my tape recorder would be running and we'd be, you know, talking about um, whatever session. And he'd be showing me things on the guitar while he figured this out. I figured that out. And I'd have these out-of-body experiences where I'd see myself as a kid at the foot of the stage screaming like mm. a maniac, of course, mm -hmm. um, seeing my idols and thinking if Keith could see that 
and then see this, quote, consummate professional that he's hired to take on the road with him doing this job. Uh, it's kind of the disconnect was great. But anyway, you know, obviously the Stones knew me. I have a really good reputation in that world. And Abco Records owned the rights to the early Stone stuff uh, up through Get Your Yeah Yeahs Out when they were going to do Satanic Majesty's Request. Um, they simply called me. And they needed the darn liner notes done in six days, I think. It was a last-minute kind of thing. But I always, uh, you know, if I have to go with no sleep for six days, I'll hit deadlines and make things work. So that was a lot of fun. Wow. That's great. Great story, too. Getting to grow up and work with some of the people you idolized as a kid, it's an amazing experience. I feel very grateful. A lot of my idols have become my friends, mm -hmm. which is kind of funny because I can no longer think of them as idols, but I do remember when they were. Yeah. And that, and their music still means the same to me. You still get giddy every now and again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I've been, uh, I get giddy about music all the time, but I can walk into a room with, you know, Keith Richards or Bob Dylan and everything's normal. Yeah, I've been around that world for since I was 15. That's when I started doing interviews. Yeah. I started young. Incredible. Chutzpah, right place, right time. That's it. Don't discount the talent. Well, I had to want to do it and, and <laughs> I had to prove myself. But it was still, you know, at the age of 15, to lie about my age and get a job writing for magazines and suddenly be interviewing blues people like T-Bone Walker and John Lee Hooker. And by the time I was 16, I was interviewing Pink Floyd and had the cover story on the Dark Side of the Moon tour. I mean, that was just nuts, leaving high school for a day. Where were you yesterday? I was interviewing Pink Floyd. Wow. Yeah, sure you were. And then the magazine comes out. There's the cover story. And I was living in a world that was insane. Once you're in that world, they send you free albums. You get free tickets to shows. I'm like going, what? I don't yeah. have to work four jobs to buy all the records I need. <laughs> These things just come to me. Uh, I thought I died and gone to heaven. And you know what? All these years later, I, I did die and went to heaven. He's, I'm still in heaven. It's a good thing. He certainly did. It's like a like a, a real life almost famous story, isn't it? Well, the funny thing is Cameron Crowe, who wrote Almost Famous mm -hmm. and wrote it about himself, he was 16 when he started writing. So mm -hmm. I actually beat him by a year. But Cameron, of course, was in California working at Rolling Stone. I'm in Toronto working for Beatle magazine. And, of course, Rolling Stone is a much, much bigger reach. But I remember thinking... Oh, give me a break, because Rolling Stone made a big deal about him being 16. And yeah. I, got, I started a year before this guy. Yeah. But anyway. You're, you're uh, the Canadian version. It's a, it, it is kind of funny. <laughs> a lot of people see Almost Famous go, that's your story. It is. Yeah. It's it very similar. Like it yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your uh, most recent writing project. It's called The Flyer Vault, 150 Years of Toronto Concert History. I'm holding it in my hot little hand here. This is fantastic. This is a great, great book. It's, Thank you. Um, there's great facts. There's some great reading in here. My, my favorite, one of my favorite things about it is there's a bit about Led Zeppelin playing uh, in Canada and Toronto for the first time in 1969. I think it was February. Oh, those rock pile shows. Sure. Yeah. And so later on, a Globe and Mail, one of the papers in the city here in Toronto, uh, reviewed it and said, this Robert Plant guy. What did he say? The direct quote was, Robert Plant could well develop into one of the big name group singers of the year. Funny, isn't it? <laughs> and you know what? The critics that are in the newspapers so often are wrong. Yeah. But this time, he nailed it. Yeah. I think that was Richie York who wrote that. It was a very big early supporter of Led Zeppelin. He actually emceed that show, and I think he wrote the first major review of that record. So Richie was tight with the band, but of course, it's kind of funny when you read something like that now. There was another uh, review we found. ACDC was opening up for... 
can't remember who, somebody at Massey Hall, a band that now means nothing, maybe Uriah Heep or something. Mm. But ACDC was opening up, and that reviewer got it too. He said, they keep going like this, they're going to be playing arenas and stadiums in a few years. Yeah. And of course, he was right on the money. The other guy who really got it right was Peter Howell reviewing U2 the night after John Lennon died. Yeah. U2 played the Elmo Combo. They didn't even have an album out yet. The Elmo held about 360 people. And those people there were people who re read British magazines like Melody Maker, NME. U2 had a big buzz going on in the UK. And uh, Peter wrote about that show and said, this band is going to be one of the biggest bands of the 80s. Mm. Three times, critics had it right. Nearly everything else we read, the critics had it <laughs> wrong. Totally wrong. <laughs> Unbelievable. The, the failure rate of rock critics at daily newspapers to predict the future. You know, on that point, there's some, there's some uh, chat and commentary about rock and roll being a, f a fad in this book. So people comment on that and, and they say, well, you know, this rock and roll thing is not going to be around next year, so don't worry about it. Ignore it. That was an attitude a lot of people had in the 50s, not just in Toronto. Um, I mean, this book obviously focuses on Toronto's concert history. But I've been teaching about rock and roll at the university level since 1979. In fact, I was the first person in Canada to teach courses about uh, rock and roll at a university level. Hmm. And this attitude of rock as a passing fad was all over in the States as well, in journals like Billboard, industry magazines, but also in daily newspapers. And, of course, that all proved to be totally, totally false. And the people writing about it in the newspapers then knew very little about it. They were general entertainment writers yeah. who, if you look at those reviews, 99% of what they wrote about was the fans, <laughs> the insane fans screaming, charging the stage, dancing wildly in ways that in the 50s seemed, you know, totally risque and out of control. They said nearly nothing about the music. Yeah. In fact, I remember one review in The Globe, the very first rock and roll show in Toronto, or big package rock and roll show, was at the Mutual Arena. It was a roller skate arena, which is now t torn down. And Little Richard headlined it with Fats Domino, Bo Diddley. It was a mostly black lineup, and it was extremely extraordinary lineup. Boy, if I had a time machine, I'd be back there in a second. Mm. But the person who reviewed it hated it, talked about mostly the crowd, their insanity, the noise. And these reviews often had a tinge of racism, too. We talk about jungle music, primitive, this, oh. that, and the other thing. But the guy admitted he left before Fats Domino came on, who was the final act. And he said, I had had enough by that point, but I'm sure it was just more and more of this noise. And it, 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 the ignorance I find profound. I really would love to. I mean, probably that person's passed on now, given the, the time. But I'd love to talk to some of those people who wrote reviews like that mm. and see if 10 years later they kind of were embarrassed about what they wrote or whether they still held to their views and never did understand the world was changing. Yeah. And this new music was incredibly exciting and was going to be living on for many, many decades. In oh, fact, yeah. have a Hall of Fame and be in university courses and so on. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that people dismissed it as a, a fad. You know what? I, I think anything that's that's really challenges the prevailing norms, people often hope is a fad. Yes. If you look at the reaction to punk, mm -hmm. I mean, punk was shocking to people in 76, 77. Yep. Now it just seems as traditional as Chuck Berry. Yes. But hip-hop, too. I remember the first time, you know, uh, I saw two turntables on a microphone in late 79. It's like, what yeah. is this? And it was fantastic, I thought. But a lot of people were ranting and railing. 
He's calling it, you know, it's not music. People aren't playing instruments. This is never going to last. This is, you know, novelty stuff. And, of course, hip-hop remains in 2019 one of the dominant, maybe even the most dominant, to popular music genre. Yeah. Ragtime greeted the same way in 1895. People have problems when there's something really interesting and radically different and new. Yeah, and I think those people tend to be older people. Kids Always. kids invest, older people dismiss because they don't quite know what to do with it. And I'm thinking about Led Zeppelin right now. And, you know, Led Zeppelin hit the scene. They were radically different. People called them heavy metal. I don't necessarily think they are. But people didn't know what to make of it. And they, they just kind of said, well, they dismissed it. They compartmentalized it. And I think that a lot of people did that with rock and roll by and large. Uh, I think you're correct. You know, Led Zeppelin's kind of funny because I remember I was in grade eight when Led Zeppelin's first album came out. And I remember there were people in my class who, this is it. This is unbelievable. Yeah. Other people who, let's say, were Beatles fans and listening to the White Album, which came out just a little bit before Led Zeppelin won, hearing Led Zeppelin as noise, which mm. is hard to imagine. I mean, you know, but of course, Led Zeppelin was blues-based, but blues-based with a sense of prog, which a lot of people didn't realize at first in terms of extended sections, different time signatures, but heavier, harder, louder, more intense than probably anybody had ever heard. So for a lot of people, it was shocking and was dismissed. And of course, there are other bands that were kind of like that. At the time, Blue Cheer yes. actually was there before Zeppelin, yep. louder and arguably heavier, yep. but with not nearly the talent that Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, John Bonham, and Robert Plant brought to the table. Exactly. The first Zeppelin album was a masterpiece. Yeah. yeah. A masterpiece. And those live performances were stunning yeah. every one i mean i've got i've got recordings of probably 70 or 80 percent of the shows they did mm. in 69 70 71 72 most of them were recorded by somebody yep. some some poor quality some great quality the set list each night could change and often did but even when the set list didn't change the improvisations and how they played something did so dates and confused could be six minutes long it could be 22 minutes long yes and what would happen in the middle sections was phenomenal. Yeah. What an incredible band. I was very lucky to see them a number of times. I started going to shows young, and it was uh, very fortunate. I saw people like Janis Joplin uh, last time she played Toronto. I saw Jefferson Airplane's last show. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw a lot of things that if I started going a couple years later, I would have missed. Yeah. See, you touched on a great point there. That's the, the specialness and the magic for me is those Led Zeppelin live shows where there's a lot of improvisational content that you, you didn't know what was going to happen. That's kind of the magic of rock and roll, really, because you're kind of wondering, like, wait, is this going to go off the rails? Like, what's going to happen here? And it was always different every night with them. And, it, and you know, rock and roll's changed. Uh, popular music's changed, of course. There are different bands and different periods where the aesthetic is one of taking songs that are written that had come out on record and using them as jumping off points to explore mm -hmm. live. Yeah. That's the aesthetic Zeppelin had, Hendrix had, Cream had, The Airplane, The Dead, and so on. Then they developed an aesthetic of trying to reproduce the records live. Much later, popular music had, you know, Genesis post-Peter Gabriel, even with Gabriel. I love Genesis. Those, those early shows with Gabriel were incredible. But you wouldn't see them or you go and see Sting and you hear the record reproduced. And my attitude is, I have the record. 
I like people like Neil Young and Bob Dylan and Van Morrison who still live on the edge and every night's different. Patti Smith is like that too. Yeah. Those are my favorite kinds of artists who don't reproduce the record but use those songs as a jumping off point to explore God knows what. And it can change night to night, tour to tour. And that's why I go see some of those people three, four times on a given tour and every year, um, time in, time out. That's an excellent point. You're absolutely right about that. Let me ask you a question related to that. What do you think the last rock and roll band was that actually did that? Well, Jack White's doing that right now. You go see Jack White, and I saw him three shows in a row on his last tour. Each show, different songs. What might happen in those songs, there's a certain room to play. Mm -hmm. Not as much as a band like The Grateful Dead that does long extended jams. And, of course, Dead and Company are still out there doing that. And there's lots of jam bands. But Jack White is probably the most current artist. Nick Cave, too. Neither one of them are brand new artists. They've been around a long time, but they're still current artists, making new records, gaining new people into their fan base as it continues to grow. And both of them still have this sense that the live show is a spiritual, shamanistic event nearly, <laughs> and that you don't want to reproduce records exactly yeah. you want to do something else and that can change it can change depending on the mood you're in how the band members themselves are feeling and how the audience is reacting the space the venue the temperature those guys always seem to be fascinating and there's never a nick cave shows the same as the one before that's right and they're all extraordinary yeah, I often forget about him. You know, you just reminded me of something. When I heard uh, Ball and Biscuit by the White Stripes for the first time, it literally lifted me off the ground. I, I couldn't believe it because it brought me back to those times of Led Zeppelin 1. That makes sense. Yeah. you got to think that uh, the White Stripes from Jack White, period, it's no accident that him and Jimmy Page are both in the film. It, it might get it might loud. might get loud, right. Because although their music they make is different, they come from a similar space and place. Jack White is fascinated with early blues music and early country to some degree as well. So yeah, he's interested in Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf, but he'll also go back to Charlie Patton, mm. Robert Johnson, and earlier people, you know, like uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson. Yeah. And he knows that music well. He doesn't want to reproduce it like a museum piece. Then it loses its vitality. Mm -hmm. Instead, he incorporates that into what he does. That's what the Rolling Stones were doing, too, to take it back to one of the things we started talking about earlier. If you listen to the Rolling Stones, you know, the early days, they covered early blue stuff. They covered Muddy Waters. They covered Howlin' Wolf. Yeah. Had a top uh, five hit with their cover of Little Red Rooster. Who would have thought a Howlin' Wolf song would go top five? But later on, when they start writing things like Gimme Shelter, mm -hmm. it's not a blues song. But I can analyze that and show you five or six elements that come directly out of blues culture. So they've managed to, as they developed as a band, to take their influences and instead of covering them, if you will, or writing songs based on the same kinds of properties, they managed to filter out various elements and create a new style at the time of rock and roll. That's really what Jack White's doing now. Yeah. If you listen to Jack White's albums, they're not blues records. But you can hear lots of blues influences in them. You hear lots of Roots Americana, your gospel stuff. You hear some country stuff. And I think that's one of the reasons he's really interesting. And I think the aesthetic that leads him to that early Roots music, just as it did for bands like Zeppelin and Cream and The Stones, mm -hmm. is the same aesthetic that leads
leads them to play live uh, on the edge every night, taking chances and not wanting to reproduce the same set in Toronto, Seattle, Cincinnati, New York, New Orleans, Montreal, and so on. He wants each night to be living on the edge. And you know what? I've been a musician. You go out and play the same show every night, it's pretty hard not to go on automatic pilot at a certain point, even though you got that rush from the crowd. You play different songs every night, keeps you on the edge, keeps yeah. you on your toes, keeps you um, keeps you sharp mentally, and it means your playing is entirely different. It's a m- much better way, in my opinion, of engaging with this great music. I absolutely agree. Okay, so speaking of great music, I've got your list here. And we are going to start off with the Rolling Stones and Jumpin' Jack Flash. Well, first of all, I have to protest the idea of a list. (laughs) (laughs) Only because I could have written out 200 songs. I know. It's impossible to do five. I say that every show. So, yeah, I gave you a list of five songs because you asked for it. And Jumpin' Jack Flash absolutely has to be on it. But there could be a lot of substitutes. Oh, yeah. But but Jumpin' Jack is seminal to me. I was a big Stones fan uh, since I was eight. Mm -hmm. And Jumpin' Jack came out uh, three years later. So I was 11 turning 12 when it came out. And I can remember I was walking to the store. I was going to buy a butterscotch sucker. I remember absolutely what I was walking to the store to buy. And I had my transistor to my ear because I always walked with my transistor radio glued to my ear so I could hear radio. And, of course, back then we only had basically AM radio. FM wasn't really happening yet. And I suddenly heard these chords. It was a riff. Uh, but the chords sounded different than anything I'd ever heard in my life. The timbre of it. I later found out all sorts of things about how it was made. Mm. Oddly enough, it was first recorded on acoustic guitar. Oh, I thought it was piano. No, it was first recorded on acoustic guitar into a, a little cassette deck. Home cassette decks came out around 1967. This song comes out in 68. So pretty low-tech cassette decks that you know, built-in condenser mic that distorted as soon as he played close to it loudly with his acoustic guitar. <laughs> and he liked the sound of it. He's basically just putting a demo down for himself of the of the riff, the idea. Mm-hmm. But he took that into the studio, took it off the cassette and put it onto, I think, an eight-track tape, put it onto one of the tracks. And the distortion on that cassette of the acoustic made it sound like, like this incredible electric guitar was distortion. Mm. He loved that sound. And he started building the track from there. It's actually got five different riffs, all of which you could trace in some ways to blues culture. But none of that did I know then. I know that now. And when I teach it, I can break it down and show it how it connects to where the stone started from. But this was a new way of playing this music. For one thing, Keith was using a five-string guitar instead of a six-string. He had taken the bass string off because he found if you played those chords without the bass string, they had a very different sound. And that sound you're on Brown Sugar, Street Fighting Man, Jumpin' Jack Flash, that sounded so uniquely Keith Richards. is part of playing the five-string, not a six-string guitar. What a great innovation. With open tuning, right? It was also open tuning. Yeah. Uh, And, of course, you can do open tuning with six strings, which most people do. Mm -hmm. But he had learned open tuning in the few years that the Stones didn't tour between early 67 and late 69. He had picked up a lot of pre-war country blues records on the last American tour. Ry Cooter had shown him how a lot of that stuff was played with open tuning. And Keith began to – in fact, he said it – he told me that he'd found – he nearly reached the end of how he could develop as a guitarist in regular tuning. Mm. And then suddenly he learns this open tuning. You know, you can play the same chords in open tuning, but 
the voicings are different. Yeah. And you can play around with your finger formations and get all sorts of different voicings. You know, a chord, a C major chord can sound a whole lot of ways, depending how you voice it on a guitar. The sound of Jumpin' Jack Flash, in effect, was the birth of that new sound for the Rolling Stones. Mm. Using open tuning, dropping that fifth string, and playing these riffs that were electrifying. Rock and roll music period always made me feel like I was more alive. It charged me in every way. I remember when I was seven when I first heard the Beatles. It's like there's life before and life after. And life before wasn't bad, but it seemed in retrospect gray. Yeah. Suddenly life was infinitely brighter because John Lennon's voice was there singing Twist and Shout. And you know, that edge in John's voice was the same edge I heard in Keith Richards' guitar. Then, of course, you got Jagger singing about, you know, being born in a crossfire hurricane and howling at his mom to drive in rain. It's all right. You know, Jump Jack Flash, it's a gas, gas, gas. Those images, in some ways, are. I, I don't want to say banal, but they're not sophisticated poetry. They're not Bob Dylan of War and Peace, The Truth Just Twists, The Curfew Gullet Glides, Upon Four-Legged Forest Clouds, The Cowboy Angel Rides. That's the beginning of Gates of Eden by Bob Dylan, which was nearly one of my top five songs. Okay. But, you know, it's not that kind of writing. But with Jagger singing it and with those riffs surrounding it, it has an edge of danger to it, an edge of excitement to it. And at least for that 11-year-old that I was... I stopped in my tracks. I could take you right now. We could get in the car and I could drive you to the street, Underhill Drive. I know where I first heard that. I could actually take you to that piece of sidewalk and say <laughs> it was this slab, not that slab, because I stopped in my tracks, pressed that thing closer to my ear. My eyes probably dilated without drugs and <laughs> just could not believe what I'd heard. Changed my life in every way, shape or form. I would love to witness that moment. Music is so evocative and it elicits that emotional response. And it literally, like I said, it can lift you off the ground or grab you by the shirt. And I've been through that. It, those experiences I had in a small town, it, they're this close to being magic. There's nothing like it. And what I find interesting is, you know, obviously I have my musical tastes. And my musical tastes are pretty wide. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I run the gamut in terms of uh, my knowledge level from, you know, 19th century Jubilee gospel stuff to electronica. But this, the core stuff that I'll go back to time and time again that really was formulative for me, I understand it really, really well. Mm -hmm. There's later things that don't move me so much. But, you know, I write part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame program every year. So I've been very lucky and have gone to the majority of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremonies, both when they used to be private at the Waldorf Astoria in New York and now that they're more public in places like the Barclays Center. It's really fascinating to me when I see somebody like Eminem inducting Run DMC and talking about when he first heard those Run DMC records. And he talks about them with the same passion that I will talk to you about Jumpin' Jack Flash. Or I remember seeing members of Metallica, Lars Ulrich and uh, Kurt Hammett, and, or Jason Linfield, I can't remember which Jason one. Nixon? But inducting Black Sabbath. Mm. It was incredible, the passion with which they spoke about Sabbath, how it changed their lives. And for me, Black Sabbath was fine. I mean, I think that first Black Sabbath album is important. Yeah. But I think Ozzy's a bit of a... Oh, I don't know. I don't want to say a moron. We'll probably get people too excited. But, you know, it's it's Tony Iommi's a great guitarist, but Ozzy's so cookie cutter. I find it hard to take Sabbath seriously. But that's simply because 
I came up in a different period. Yeah. You know, to me, they're a poor person's Led Zeppelin in their own way. Even though, again, I think Tony Iommi's amazing, and I love their first record. But to see the members of Metallica speak with the same passion that I speak with about Jumpin' Jack Flash tells me something. Yes. It tells me that for each generation, it can be different music, different artists, different records. But there are those, many of which will make music their life, Many, it'll just be their life and that they're passionate listeners and will be listening forever and in the past collecting records, maybe later collecting CDs, now streaming like maniacs. It could be all sorts of different things that can send you over the moon. I've talked to older people who the first time they heard Hank Williams couldn't believe what they were hearing. And I love Hank Williams. I'm so lonesome I could cry. It's one of the greatest sounds ever. But I can't feel that same thing about Hank even though it's deep and it's important and I love it that I can feel about Jumpin' Jack Flash because mm -hmm. of who I am, what age I was, and how I experienced it. I could go on forever about this stuff, by the way. We could be we could be here for six hours easily. Twelve easily. <laughs> maybe they'll be a lifetime. Weekend. I'm not I've kidding, spent a lifetime talking about this stuff and making <laughs> making a living doing it. All right. Next song, Bob Dylan, Trying to Get to Heaven. You know, Bob Dylan may be my favorite artist ever, although I nearly feel sacrilegious saying that because, of course, that means the Beatles and the Stones would have to somehow be two and three. So I don't know if I want to say that, but I think Bob Dylan is probably the most important white musician, at least, uh, since World War II, mm. maybe in the 20th century. And I'm being very serious about that. Mm -hmm. uh, he completely changed the game, completely changed the possibilities of popular music. And I first got into Bob at nine. For me, it was the Stones seven, the Be uh, sorry, the Beatles seven, Stones at eight, Bob Dylan when I was nine. And I remember buying Like a Rolling Stone as a kid when I was nine. And the Beatles were doing eight days a week, which is a great, great pop record. I love it. You know, it's got eight different hooks in it, funnily enough, given its title. But Like a Rolling Stone was a different level of sophistication. Doesn't mean that's better, but it was really different. Mm. I also heard things, of course, on that same album, Highway 61 Revisited, like Ballad of a Thin Man. You, something's happening here and you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? And then 11-minute songs like Desolation Row, which I don't think I could have pretended to understand when I was nine, yeah. but I was intrigued by. So from that moment on, Dylan continued to just blow my mind. Picking a favorite Dylan song is really difficult. I nearly picked Isis from the Desire album. So it's funny, he's never played it since the Rolling Thunder review tour. Of course, mm. the word Isis is problematic these days. Mm. Saw Jack White play Isis, though. Uh. Jack White covered it at one show at the Paris Olympia. It was great. But Trying to Get to Heaven comes off an album called Time Out of Mind. Time Out of Mind came out in 1997. You know, a lot of people... We'll call them legacy artists or artists who've had multi-decade careers tend to always say, oh, it's those first albums that were the best albums. You know, they'll go back to the first Black Sabbath album, for example. Mm -hmm. The seventh one isn't nearly as important to them. And that happens with Dylan, too. People go back to the so-called golden period from, let's say, when he's running Blown in the Wind through Like a Rolling Stone and maybe up to Lay, Lady Lay or Knocking on Heaven's Door or Tangled, uh, or Tangled Up in Blue. And then... For a lot of people, post that, they don't even really know the records. Well, Time Out of Mind's a later record, and it's one of the three or four best records he ever made. Mm -hmm. 
The song I believe I picked for you was Trying to Get to Heaven. Yes. I could have picked Not Dark Yet. And ironically, Dylan Tour right now, he's playing both songs. Ah. I can't believe it. I'm going to get to see both of them in one show, hmm. unless he changes his mind, which he often does. They both reference mortality, trying to get to heaven before they close the door. That's a powerful, powerful image. Mm. And it's interesting to see this music that was oriented towards young people become music that works multi-generationally. And, of course, artists that have got older, like Bob Dylan, might be thinking of mortality, as all of us do in a way when you know, you're in your 50s or 60s, or, as opposed to when you're a teenager. So here's somebody who had had a near-death experience that year, by the way, Dylan did nearly die, mm. although he claims these songs were written before that happened. And Not Dark Yet is similar. It's not dark yet, but it's getting there. And they're really kind of world-weary songs. They're songs about a life well-lived, the sort of existential struggles of all of us uh, as we try to find meaning in our life, find purpose in our life, do things that make some sort of difference in some sort of way. But trying to get to heaven encapsulates that in a marvelous way. But it's not the lyrics alone that would make me pick that song. It's got a melody that's hard to rationally explain, but just makes me melt every time I hear it. Mm -hmm. And it's not just that melody, and it's not just that those words. It's the way Dylan phrases them. And it's a beautiful poetic image, trying to get to heaven before they close the door. Yeah, I'm not uh, a member of any particular religion. Obviously, I'm aware of the concept of heaven. Not so sure it really exists. It'd be nice <laughs> if it did, but, uh, but it, let's say it does exist. I've never heard the concept that they're ever going to close the door. Mm. But well, that's kind of an interesting image. And it's, it's, it's an image in a way that could have come out of blues culture. And Dylan's so much. Dylan's an ethnomusicologist. He knows that early music in a way that very, very few human beings, musicians, listeners, professors do. And I think his later work, sort of like the Stones taking blues ideas and creating Jumpin' Jack Flash, which has nothing to do with blues. Yeah, Time Out of Mind has songs that represent an adult version of popular music that's never existed. And it's based, in many ways, on earlier kinds of gestures, but your average listener would never even hear that or know it because it sounds so of the time. Yeah. It's an extraordinary song. Patti Smith, Horses is next. <laughs> I remember when punk first hit. You know, some people, a lot of people say 76. That's Ramones' first album. And for Torontonians, September 76 is when the Ramones first played the city. Yeah. And that was the birth of punk. Nearly all the great punk bands that came out of Toronto were all at those Ramones shows. I was there. They were shocking and exciting. And it was one, two, three, four. <laughs> but, you know, Patti Smith was part of that scene. And Patti actually came here earlier that year, played Massey Hall. Uh, you know, Patti Smith had... Arista Records behind her and Clive Davis. And although she was part of that CBGB scene that produced the Ramones and Talking Heads and Blondie and, and television, television yeah. she was also separate from it in that she was a beat poet influenced by people like Kerouac and Ginsburg who would write lyrics that Joey Ramone, you know, was, I want a teenage lobotomy or beat a brat with a baseball bat would never even think of. Patty also had one foot in the 60s and people like Hendrix and Dylan 
and the Rolling Stones. And that led her to not just hammer out these punk songs in one minute, 52 seconds, like the Ramones might, as exciting as the Ramones were, but led her to want to do long, extended, improvisatory stuff. Mm. And Horses is one of those songs. I think on the album, in fact, it's called Land. It's actually called Land, uh, but there's three sections to it. Horses is the first section. Mm -hmm. But it's an extended improv. And Horses is continually reinvented. It's partially about a punk called Johnny who's shooting heroin. It's partially about the experience while he's on heroin. It's partially about the freedom that rock and roll brings to you, which is when it goes into the land of a thousand dances part. It's got a churning chugging, charging rhythm to it that live, I can do it with the record too, but live sends me into a frenzy. On the record, it's kind of the thing that, especially when you're younger, you put on and you'd be bopping around your living room, <laughs> bouncing against the walls because this is something you cannot sit still for. So it's a journey sonically, it's a journey energetically, and it's a journey in terms of the words linguistically and intellectually and it's a journey that always keeps changing it's one of the greatest rock and roll records ever by anybody from any planet in any decade it's a hell of an endorsement <laughs> uh, you can tell i like this woman but you know what i could have picked seven other patty songs too but yeah. that is my ultimate patty song okay public enemy is next with fight the power public enemy was the first important conscious rap group. Mm -hmm. I say first important one because certainly Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five with songs like The Message, you can argue that certainly was a conscious oriented song. Boogie Down Production certainly had some. Public Enemy, Chuck D, who leads Public Enemy, you know, made it his mission to be, as he put it, the CNN for black people or <laughs> young black people. Fight the Power for a lot of people, including me was first encountered in Spike Lee's movie. And it's a pivotal point in the movie where you first hear this song, and it sums up everything about what it meant to be in the inner city and African-American and dealing with daily issues of racism. And it was a call to arms, mm. not arms as in necessarily guns, though, you know, maybe for some people, but a call to fight oppression. Ever since I was a little kid, I've been highly sensitized to racism, racial issues, partially because so much of the music I loved when I was young was black. And it made me interested in the civil rights movement. And I'd see daily on TV what was happening in Selma, Alabama. I saw, you know, the news footage of that march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge mm -hmm. and these peaceful protesters simply trying to make a point by marching, having their heads split open by racist cops and other white citizens who the cops allowed to participate in these events. It shocked, horrified me, seemed incredibly wrong. So oppositional material and the plight of the black community, which produced so much of the music I care about. And even though we've talked about artists like the Rolling Stones so far today and Bob Dylan, who influenced them? You know, the Rolling Stones turned me on to Otis Redding. I mentioned that. They also turned me on to Muddy Waters. 
Everything I care about, even John Lennon when I was seven, singing Twist and Shout and completely making me a musical fanatic overnight. He's singing a song by a black group called the Isley Brothers. Mm. You know, over time, I began to realize everything I cared about in white rock and roll ultimately came from the black church. Yeah. All this is a long way of saying that I've had a deep-seated and intense interest in all sorts of black music since I was 10 and bought that first Otis Redding record. And when I first heard rap, I was fascinated. What an incredible new form of music. People scratching records, those hard-edged rhythms of so much of the early rap recordings. It was like the birth of rock and roll all over again or the birth of punk. It was something that was so fresh, so new, so exciting, so intense. And when Public Enemy came along, about eight years after the first rap record, here was a group that married those incredible sounds to lyrics like Bob Dylan's. On a grassroots level, might start to change the way people think and would do this, but with, you know, musical licks that just had you excited beyond the belief. There's a part in Fight the Power where you hear, ah, and what it is is it's the I from I Shot the Sheriff by Bob Marley and the Whalers. Oh. It's the I-3 singing that, and the Bomb Squad, who does the production of Public Enemy's records, mm -hmm. sampled that I, chopped off the second half, so you just hear, ah, it's extraordinary. Wow. You also hear things like Israeli gazelle singers doing stuff on those records, what they would sample and how they'd work it into those records. The type of syncopation, of course, and the way that Chuck rapped and the way that rhythm tracks were sampled and looped was just like James Brown in a way, mm -hmm. except it was cutting edge in 1987. Yeah. It was brand new and unbelievably exciting. Now rap's gone mainstream. I love Common. I think Nas is important. Kendrick is phenomenal. So is Pharrell. But it's now mainstream music. Mm -hmm. It's not radically new anymore. It's just great music. And there's also a lot of mundane rap. Yeah. Us, there's tons of mundane rock and roll. You know, Just oh, because yeah. the Stones made a great record called Jumpin' Jack Flash doesn't mean every rock and roll group that followed was interesting. Like any music, 90% of it's crap. That's right. 10% that's great. It's amazing. And that's as true with hip hop or rap as anything else. And Public Enemy is about as good as it gets. Mm. Speaking of James Brown, Cold Sweat is your last song. Oh, my God. You know, it's funny. When I think about some of the songs that we're talking about today, and again, they weren't quite arbitrary. These are among my favorite songs, but I easily could have picked a different set for you. Oh, yeah. And even with each artist, I could have picked a different record. With James, I might have picked Please, Please, Please. Yeah. That's from 1956. Cold Sweat's from 1967. Yeah. Very different eras. Please, Please, Please is the beginning of soul music. Funk arguably starts with Cold Sweat. One could argue Papa's got a brand new bag from 65, two years earlier. You could see the roots of what finally manifested fully fledged in Cold Sweat. But Cold Sweat really is the beginning of funk. And funk as a music was all about rhythm. You know, you'd think about the two different guitars in James Brown, the bass, of course, the drums, the horns. They're all playing parts that are rhythms that interlock in a way like an African master drum ensemble. And I'm being very serious. I know mm -hmm. sub-Saharan African music very well. Mm -hmm. I teach this stuff for a living. Um, this is not something I reference casually. What James did with that particular record is, in effect, replicate what African drum ensembles had done for a long time. Each one of those band members has a different rhythm they're playing. Any one of them by itself? Not so exciting. 
but you put them together in this interlocked way and you have this popping groove that your body just cannot resist. And at the same time, you're privileging rhythm in terms of the number of rhythms going on at once, the level of syncopation, and breaking it down to the level of the 16th note. Most popular music before, syncopation was happening at the level of the 8th note of the triplet. This is taking it one degree further, if you will. And for those who don't understand what I'm talking about, it just gives you more spaces, if you will, between <laughs> beats to place your syncopations, more asymmetrical places to make your body pop. And, you know, James doing that, that record, shocking. He sits on the one chord for 128 bars, hmm. doesn't change chords. That's not the way music worked before that. In fact, a lot of people I knew thought, this is incredibly boring. There's always chord changes. And even if you don't play music and don't understand it, you do understand it because you've been hearing it since you were born. You just don't know how to label it. Mm -hmm. It's like saying you don't know how to speak. You don't know what a subjunctive clause is, so you can't speak English. Of course you speak English. You use subjunctive clauses all the time. You just don't know how to label them because right. you haven't had that low training in grammar. You understand music the same way you understand any language. So uh, when James suddenly is sitting on the one chord for 128 bars— it's like, what's going on here? This is like William Burroughs and cut-up technique in terms of language. This is unlike anything people have heard. For a lot of people, it's a dividing line. James basically fell off the pop charts at that point. Became, interesting enough, a bigger hero mm. if you look at the R&B charts. So black audiences embrace this. I'd argue Cold Sweat's a much more African record than anything in Western popular music before that. And all the great subsequent funk records like Soul Power, Funky President, People's Bad, all of that great stuff, Say It Loud and Black and I'm Proud, that followed were really more African and a new way of making music in the United States of America. And if you look at hip-hop, what does it sample? It's largely sampling funk records. Well, I say largely because great hip-hop samples from all over the place. But the basis of so much of it is James Brown records, Cold Sweat sampled all over the place, or it's P-Funk records, going back to funk. Part of the reason is because of it's a more African sounding. It's arguably a blacker sounding uh, genre, if you will, the way people tend to think about it and hear it in North America. And the other thing about Cold Sweat, it goes for seven minutes. It's intense. It's got a two-bar ostinato, if you will, two-bar rhythmic construct that just keeps repeating. And you sit in that one chord and you get locked into this two-bar thing over and over. And you'll go into a trance if you get deep into it. <laughs> and, of course, it's made for dancing. It's not product. It's process. The process is that cycling of that ostinato. Western European music works on a linear basis based on the grammar of functional harmony. This is a different way of making music. I like trance. I like out-of-body experiences. And when you get to the end and James is shredding his voice to the point where he's actually doing damage to his larynx, he's indicating a commitment to his audience in a church context to a congregation. And what he's doing is what black preachers had done for a long, long time. And he's making that commitment to the funk. It's nearly sacred music in an increasingly secular world. That's what I think about it. And when I see James Brown, well, when I used to see James Brown at his peak, you saw a church service happening, except God wasn't referenced. You know, relationships were referenced. I break out in a cold sweat. It's about his love for a girl. When he sees her, he breaks out in a cold sweat. Yeah. But it's, it's religious music, and it's based entirely in terms of the timbre, 
intensity of vocal production solo and gospel, but the groove, sub-Saharan African drum ensembles, and Maceo's horn solos are jazz-based. What a combination. It's an extraordinary record. This has been an extraordinary conversation. I go on about this forever. <laughs> I was going to say, where can I you sign want to up talk for about class? Sun Ra, Miles Davis, or Nick Coleman? <laughs> we can talk about that too in the same way because there's nearly no limit to how much great music there is. You know what's on top of my Christmas tree? What's up? A star with Muddy Waters in it, the great Chicago bluesman. Yeah. I could easily have picked a Muddy record as one of my top five records. Well, we're definitely going to bring you back next time if you want, because uh, I feel like you've probably got about 59 more episodes in here. Cool. I'd love to. <laughs> right. Thank you so much for coming in. This has been a great discussion. I really, really enjoyed it, and I learned a lot. Well, Brent, you know what? One of the great things about loving music is sharing that love with other people. Mm. Is you know, your whole show is predicated on this, is sharing, this record's amazing. You know, what? why? Well, blah, 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 blah. Exactly. And getting people. So they're excited and want to hear that record. I've been doing that, and I'm sure you have too, since you were a kid. Yes. You got a new record. You have friends over in your living room. You put it on, go, listen to this. Yeah. And, of course, I get to do it teaching now too. So this has been fun doing this show. And to some degree, that new book that I just finished co-writing, The Fire Vault, 150 Years of Toronto Concert Music, is a book that tries to capture all of these concert moments, which gave that excitement maybe times 10 in terms of what the records gave. So thank you for having me on. Thank you for pitching my book a little bit. Absolutely. And I'd love to come back. I will definitely have you back. Cool. All right, folks, get that book, The Flyer Vault, 150 Years of Toronto Concert History by Dr. Rob Bowman. This has been No Sleep, No Subway with French Ensign. Until next time, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>